Welcome back to the 10 Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on the show today is James B. Miggs. He's a new senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's also a new contributing editor of City Journal magazine. Um, He's the co-host of the How Do We Fix It podcast. He writes a tech column for commentary and is the former editor of Popular Mechanics, among other publications. His coverage of energy, environmental policy, culture, and other topics has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Slate, and many other publications. And he's been writing a number of articles for City Journal in recent weeks on the state of the energy economy at a time of global turmoil. So, Jim, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. Great to be back, Brian. Uh, you know, you as I note, you've been covering uh, the energy world, not only for City Journal, but, but for other publications for, for a while now. I think you would have to agree that this year is uh, uh, just an anomalous and striking year. The price of oil and natural gas has gone through the roof. Um, you know, the, the, there's a number of factors behind the energy inflation we're seeing, including Russia's invasion of Ukraine, obviously. Uh, but I wonder, you know, if you could just give us a, a brief survey of what you think is, is going on here. Uh, why is energy becoming so expensive? Uh, and how did we get here? Yeah, you know, we are in the early stages of what some analysts believe will be a global energy crisis of the kind we saw in the 70s, perhaps worse. And the war in Ukraine is a big part of it. But in a way, it's something that has just precipitated a an intense demonstration of problems that were already in the works. And a lot of those problems have to do with counterproductive energy policies, particularly in the, in the, in the Western world. You've seen in Europe and in, in North America efforts to transition to renewable energy, especially wind and solar, and at the same time, a movement away from nuclear power efforts to reduce the production of natural gas, efforts to reduce the production and transportation of oil. All those things have led us to a point where we do not have supplies of reliable energy. In the electricity world, what they call dispatchable energy. You know, electricity you can turn on and off as needed as opposed to electricity produced by wind and solar that comes and goes according to the weather. It's not particularly predictable. So we have made our entire energy system a little bit more brittle, more fragile, less responsive to changes in demand. And as a result, when some incident like the war in Ukraine or say a major cold snap in the Northeast of the US or in Texas, when those things happen, we find out that our energy distribution system isn't really up to the challenge and prices skyrocket. Sometimes we have blackouts, sometimes natural gas supplies don't get through. So we are living in a time of real vulner- vulnerability here in terms of energy. Uh, in, in an essay that you've written for the forthcoming summer issue of City Journal, you, you look at the European situation where you note that European officials have favored utopian sentiments over economic and engineering reality. And you, you point out that Germany has uh, spent an extraordinary amount of money, 500 billion euros on wind and solar infrastructure, biofuels, all these other initiatives 
over the last 20 years, but the country's total share of energy produced by fossil fuels has fallen uh, only to 78% from 84% over that period of time. And so now you've got this invasion uh, of the Ukraine. Um, you know, that's forced Europe to uh, curtail purchases of, of Russian hydrocarbons. Uh, you, you know, the, the just reality is kicking in here. Germany and, and it, you know, other European countries have got to face reality. So they've been depending on Russia now for years for, for energy supply. And now they're looking at, as you just noted, potential blackouts, um, you know, uh, cold in the winter, uh, a huge problem of energy security. So, I, you know, I wonder what you think might might be done to address this problem um, and and deal with this pretty, pretty significant crisis. You know, a situation like this of energy insecurity and shortfalls in, in energy supplies, it's kind of like uh, a, a home or a business that goes into enormous debt. You, you know, well, what can you do about it? Well, roll back the tape a few years and don't get in the situation in the first place. You use the word utopian in, in describing some of the policies behind Germany's uh, energy and climate uh, uh, policies, and they, it, utopian is the right word. There was a disconnect from hard-headed reality and a real reliance on optimistic, almost romantic ideas about what the future should look like, what energy should look like. And I'm actually an advocate for reducing carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. Certainly, I'm an advocate for reducing the use of coal, which has devastating impacts on air pollution and human health, and finding market-friendly ways to evolve beyond those, those energy sources. But the idea that you can replace all of that relatively rapidly with wind and solar is is simply not realistic. And uh, Germany has discovered that. So now instead of reducing their carbon emissions, they're actually going backwards and they're reopening coal plants and they are looking to find anything they can burn. Basically they're, they're in across Europe, people are looking to use oil, oil to make electricity. That's something you only do in an emergency. They're uh, looking to buy coal from anywhere around the world they can. Germany has an enormous open pit coal mines. Those are running 24-7. So, you know, if and, you... And that's all because they don't want to uh, keep open their nuclear energy plants, right? Or invest... Yeah, in... yeah. Germany had a good fleet of very... Uh, uh, they were described to me by one analyst as, as state-of-the-art nuclear engineering, these beautifully made nuclear plants. You can imagine the, the, the state of that kind of technology uh, in, in Germany. And they, after the Fukushima accident in 2011, they vowed to, uh, to close those plants years ahead of schedule as part of their overall energy environmental climate policy. And they actually then accelerated that schedule for closing these plants. So they had at the beginning of, of 2022, they had six plants left producing a, a large quantity of their electricity. And they closed three at, on uh, December 31st or January 1st. 
against you know quite a bit of of concern among energy experts and and on some people in Germany. But the Green Party is very powerful. They're part of the current governing coalition. The Green Party was more or less founded as anti-nuclear weapons and anti-nuclear power. They kind of conflate those two things going back to the 70s. So this anti-nuclear movement is very deeply rooted on the German left, the European left. Now they have three plants left. Those are scheduled to close at the end of the year. And Germany's vice chancellor, uh, a guy named um, Robert Habeck, who comes from the Green Party, he just announced that no, no matter what, they weren't going to reconsider they're not going to keep those last three plants open, and instead they're going to reopen some coal-fired power plants they'd shut down. So this is the Green Party speaking, and they're the biggest political force in Germany against zero-carbon power. Extraordinary. Uh, you know, shifting to the developing world, there's crisis looming there because of energy costs. You you look at. Uh, Sri Lanka, which is experiencing basically a full-scale collapse right now. You've got mass protests. The, the president has fled the country. Uh, the government is defaulting on its debt. And there are significant shortages of food and energy. But you know that may be just the beginning of what could be a lot of global upheaval. Ukraine and Russia account for about one-third, I think, of the wheat available on export markets. Uh, and they, you know, they send large shares of corn, barley, vegetable oils, all sorts of things to, to the global uh, economy. Uh, the Economist recently had a piece noting that households in emerging economies spend about a quarter of their budgets on food. And in sub-Saharan Africa, that rises to s something like 40%. So you've written that uh, suspending the renewable fuel standard could help ease some of this coming food crunch. Uh, I wonder if you could explain that. What would this entail and how would it help? Yeah. One of the things I've always been fascinated by is well-intentioned environmental policies that wind up backfiring and yet for various political reasons are impossible to repeal or change or nearly impossible. The renewable fuel standard goes back uh, more than 15 years as part of an effort to move American energy, you know, liquid fuels, diesel, gasoline, away from fossil fuels and towards something renewable, biofuels. The idea was that we would develop all these exotic biofuels from things like switchgrass or, or crop waste or other high cellulose uh, materials that then could be converted into ethanol to burn, that turns out to be really hard. So the original goal of the renewable fuel standards was never reached. And instead, they allow refiners to mix in ethanol that's made from, from crops, from corn, or biodiesel that's made from soybean oil. If you put soybean oil in a diesel engine, virtually unmodified, once the engine gets hot, it can burn that oil. So it makes a decent fuel. But then you stop and think, we're actually burning food to power our vehicles. Does that make environmental sense? Does it make geopolitical sense? And the answer is it doesn't. In fact, a recent study from the DOE shows that it takes more energy to make a gallon of ethanol from corn than is contained in that gallon of ethanol. So every time 
you power your car with ethanol, and you do because every gallon of gasoline you buy at the gas station has about 10% of ethanol in it, you are really going backwards in terms of climate. You're also not helping. It doesn't really help any aspect of the energy economy or the food economy, except putting money in the pockets of farmers. It's a stealth subsidy to farmers and the big agribusses uh, uh, like Archer Daniels Midland that refine this, these grains into ethanol. When you look at this looming global food crisis, maybe this is a good time to stop putting 40% of the corn we grow into our gas tanks. Yeah, it, it you know I don't know how quickly you could make that transition, but it it seems to make complete sense at, at you know at this at this moment of crisis. I don't think it would happen over. It wouldn't happen overnight. Markets take time to sort themselves out, and you so you know we're not going to immediately be able to take all that corn and sell it on the global market. But but commodities markets are also very futures oriented, and even knowing that the supply is going to increase down the road would help put some downward pressure on prices. Uh, let's uh, try to uh, conclude on a more optimistic note. Um, you know, in a piece that uh, you published last spring for City Journal, you detailed a number of innovations that could help deliver low emissions energy cheaply and efficiently. Uh, these technologies, as you describe them, from carbon capture and storage to uh, new nuclear reactor designs, have gained uh, some influence among a growing group of right of center folks, um, and you know, which you've you've called the new green right. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about their approach and and how viable some of these technologies are, and uh, and you know whether whether we we can look to that for some improvement in this global situation. Yeah, on the technology side, there's a lot of promising work going on, especially in nuclear power. There are more than 100 startups around the world designing new types of compact, very efficient, ultra-safe nuclear uh, reactor designs. And the U.S. government has been, through the Department of Energy, has been providing some significant seed money, research money to some of these uh, these companies. One is called TerraPower, funded by uh, it, it, Bill Gates is a major investor in that. Another one that's about to start building a test plant out of uh, in the Pacific Northwest is called New Scale. There are several others uh, just in the U.S. alone. Canada is a leader in this. So there are some real promising technologies to help us move to the next generation of energy production. But there's also really promising news on the political front. We think of conservatives and Republicans as being reflexively you know, not caring about climate. They think it's all BS. They, they're, they're, um, they're unified against environmental policies. That's no longer true. Even some very conservative Republicans have come out saying, we do need to take climate issues seriously, but we're not going to buy into the hype and the Green New Deal type of thinking that we see on the progressive left. We're not going to use climate as an excuse to roll out across the board progressive policies. Instead, we're going to look for practical market-oriented uh, solutions like advanced nuclear power. And what's exciting to me is in a time of so much polarization and division, 
the nuclear area is what one one expert I talked to, he said, it's a weird wormhole of bipartisanship. The Biden administration is very supportive of nuclear power to their credit, given that a lot of their progressive base is anti-nuclear. And we're seeing pro-nuclear power, uh, pro-nuclear power policies rolling from the Obama administration through the Trump administration and into the Biden administration. It's not necessarily enough. There are a lot of headwinds against nuclear power in this country, but we are seeing some real efforts to keep the plants we have operating open and not shut them down prematurely as we did here in the New York area with Indian Point, but also fund some investments in new technologies, which should be able to get, once they get stood up and they're proven, they should be able to move forward and succeed in the market on their own. Well, thanks very much, Jim. Uh, Don't forget to check out James B. Miggs' work on the City Journal website. As I noted at the top, he is a new fellow of the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor of City Journal. Uh, We'll link to his uh, extensive writings for for City Journal on our website, www.city-journal.org. We'll link to his author page in the description. You can also find City Journal on Twitter, at City Journal, and on Instagram, at CityJournal underscore MI. Uh, And as always, if you like what you've heard on today's podcast, please give us a ratings on iTunes. Uh, Jim Miggs, thanks very much. Great to talk with you as always. It's my pleasure. Thanks for joining us for the weekly 10 Blocks podcast featuring urban policy and cultural commentary with City Journal editors, contributors, and special guests.